Before we get back to today's show, here's a quick word from HubSpot. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. Like try to remember the name of that guy you just met at a networking event. Was it Ron? Could it be Don or John or Sean? Yeah, that kind of impossible. HubSpot's new service hub can help. Well, with the service solution part, at least. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. With an AI-powered help desk and an AI chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. And a full 360 view of every customer. So your go-to-market team can keep up on the pulse of accounts before trying to upsell or cross-sell. Also, you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. And you know what that means. Better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit HubSpot.com service to do more for your customers today. On this episode of Marketing Against the Green, we are going to give you six content principles that will allow you to grow an audience for any business. We're going to go behind the scenes with one of the best creators in the world, Steph Smith, and she is going to tell us how she's been so successful in content, the six principles that she's used, and a framework that you will not hear anywhere else, and how we apply all of this to growing the hardest thing in the world, a podcast. I'm your host, Kieran Flanagan, CMO over at Zapier. I'm here as always with my co-host, Kip Bodner, the CMO over at HubSpot. Let's dive into today's show. Hey, Steph, welcome to the show. We're happy to have you back on again on Marketing Against the Green. I'm stoked to be here. Sorry, I sound like a radio DJ there. (laughs) We're keeping that in. We're keeping that in. I don't know what I'm doing there. It's Monday morning. Uh, And now here's the top 40, (laughs) down to 40. Okay, sorry. Uh, All right, Steph, you've grown all kinds of content, right? We we worked together briefly at HubSpot. Mm -hmm. We set up the creator program, have done all incredible stuff in your career, all kind of through the lens of content. You're an incredible creator. What we want to try to do in this show is teach people how to be like Steph and then convince them whether they should actually apply those things to launching a podcast because podcasts are really hard. And we want to see if any of the skills that we have learned as content creators have applied to us growing a podcast. So we're doing Marketing Against the Grain. You're doing the A16 and Z podcast, mm-hmm. which is incredible. I'm a subscriber. Thanks. And so that is the show. You think it's a good show, Steph, because you're a podcast? Well, I'll yourself. make one modification. We don't okay. want people to be like me, but I will try to share what I know about the content sphere because it is tough. Yes. I don't know, Steph. You're like one of the most interesting people I know. Really? Yeah. You have such a broad range of knowledge and experience. You're super interesting. Don't sell yourself short. I'm just a good marketer. <laughs> <laughs> this comes back to they had a Greg Eisenberg on and yeah. we were going through like how people can build a business through content, like starting a video newsletter, going to community, paid community. Mm-hmm. And actually the very first topic we talked about is like, you have to be interesting. Like in yes. today's world, I know that sounds simplistic, but you have to be interesting. Your Twitter feed is really interesting because it's pretty diverse in the things that you cover. So why don't mm-hmm. we start there? Did you as an interesting person, do you have to cultivate that? And do you believe that's true to be great at content? Yes, I do. And do you believe you're interesting? <laughs> Loaded question. I do. I think if anyone doesn't think they're interesting, something's going on. They got to reorient their life. But yeah, I I think I started with Twitter a while ago. And Twitter to me was just this outlet for me to share the things that I wanted to say. Like I was learning to code and to let people know and to also like scream to the rooftops that other people should do the same. And so it really started as not 
a distribution mechanism for like some future business, but really just for my inner need to say something. And then what over time happened is because I never really had to utilize Twitter as a platform to actually go make money, it was able to evolve with me. Mm. And that's why you see all these like sporadic, disparate things surface, whether it's like used to be coding, then it was at one point really centered around remote work, then it was trends, and now it's, you know, a whole bunch of other things. But most creators do get stuck at that stage, right? Where they become the ex guy or ex girl, and then they never leave that. And then I think to your point about whether it's curated, I think on the back end, I do need to a lead an interesting life, but I also like am very, very specific about what I read, the newsletters I subscribe to, the podcasts I listen to, and I guess the way I spend my internet time. So I don't know if that answers your question, but yes, I do think that your outward Twitter feed is inevitably a reflection of the way that you spend your day to day. I think it's also a little bit even more than that stuff like saw over the weekend <laughs> that in Florence there's a new exhibit mm-hmm. they found this cavern under one of the buildings in Florence that was basically Michelangelo's drawing room that he would just like Amazing. sketch drawings of different statues he's considering and everything it just so you have all these kind of random half completed sketches all over that and I think if you're going to make stuff you have to have like a testing ground you have to have a sketch pad the beauty of something like Twitter is that you actually get feedback on it versus yes. it being in a metaphorical cave or in a notebook or anything like that. And so when I look at your Twitter feed, I look at it a little bit like that. I'm like, oh, this is like kind of stuff sketchbook where she's working through ideas in public that then might show up on a podcast, might show up someplace else. Is that kind of how it feels or not? Yes, definitely. I mean, I think one of the fundamental amazing aspects of the fact that we live in 2023 is the fact that we can get that bi-directional feedback. Yeah. 20 years ago, you would ship a blog post and you'd be one of the first to do that. And you'd get such simple data, if any. And then prior to that phase, 20 years before that, if you wanted to publish something in a newspaper, all you would know are the like raw sales of that newspaper, right? Like to everyone You wouldn't know exactly what articles they're reading. You wouldn't know how far they got along. You wouldn't be able to test, as you just spoke to, the idea for an article that you maybe would want to invest in. And so today, it's just this incredible ecosystem where you can post something not just on Twitter, on Reddit. There's tools where you can see what people really care about. And so you can not only test your own ideas, but you can also borrow other people's ideas that are pre-vetted. And these like pipes of the internet are incredible. And it's surprising to me that more people don't use that testing ground. This is actually really fascinating. So one of the things I've been spending some time on recently is going back and just looking through personalization through the ages, like starting with first ads and Kip had a really good example of the cowboy delivering the... Oh, the original Pony Express ad is like one of the best ads ever. Yeah, one of the best, the Pony Express ads right from the 1860s. And just like going back through time of like how you got feedback on the content that you put out. And one of the things that has happened, right, is that we have this reduced feedback loop. And you could actually make a case that there's a lot of pros and cons to that. Mm -hmm. Some of the cons are actually that you switch up things really fast based upon the feedback you get. And things become much more polarized because you get feedback so quickly. You're like, oh, geez, I actually need to be more like this or more like that. But one of the lessons within there I kind of wanted to come back to, because it's a, I think it's an important first lesson if someone is trying to start out a content or be better at content is kind of this idea of picking your lane, right? You call it like being the X guy or the X girl, or I can't remember they call mm-hmm. themselves on Twitter, but be, having <laughs> like your niche, right? Having your thing. And I think one of the reasons I would have always sucked at being a creator 
is because I've always found it really hard to stick to a single thing. Like I remember yeah. when HubSpot, when we did the product-led growth thing, and I learned by creating content. People think I create content just because I want to get engagement, but no. I actually need to distill it into writing and put it out in the world. That's how I kind of learn about things. And so when I was doing the product-led growth thing, that was the first time I got a ton of traction. Like everything was blowing up in my inbox. I could feel it. Mm -hmm. I was one of the few people creating content about it. I could feel like this whole swell, tons of consultant advisory asks, all these different asks. And as soon as there was like, I, I think it was like creator economy. Like I got fascinated by that. I got fascinated by Web3. I switched lanes like really quickly. I was like, oh, I'm onto the next thing. Like there's a bright, shiny object over here. I need to go learn about that. So how do you think about that if we're given advice to people who want to excel at content today? Do you have to stay in your lane like to cultivate that audience? How have you thought about that? No, I actually don't think you need to stay in your lane. And I think there are a few tried and true creator pieces of advice. One of them is always be consistent. Another one is, yeah, like pick a lane and stick to it and become known for that and the top tier expert for it. And those do work. Like there's a reason people share those pieces of advice. But if you especially are an independent creator, like you're not trying to build some massive business in a specific industry like, you know, fashion or travel or something like that, then I think actually what is more compelling is people adhering to the way you think. And mm. so you should be able to, no matter what topic you're talking about, describe the way that you share your content. So some people are really approachable. Actually, that's what a lot of people tell me is they're like, oh my gosh, when you were talking about learning to code, I saw myself in you. Like I, all of a sudden, all these other people who are really technical, they've been saying it for years, never struck chord. The way that you package things is approachable. Other people are just like really, really unfiltered. <laughs> and that appeals to a certain group of people, right? They're like, you're telling it like it is. Finally, I've been looking for someone <laughs> like you forever. And, you know, other people are super technical, right? So like there's different ways that you can share content. And if you think about the people who don't just have these like growth spurts that disappear on a platform like Twitter, it's because you've grown to like them more so mm. than, you know, any slice of the content they shared for a period of time. So I actually think that if you have this really long time horizon as a creator, you absolutely can and probably should evolve because your audience is also evolving. She's all over the news, but like if you look at Taylor Swift, her tour is literally called the Eros Tour because she reinvented herself so many times over and look at where she is versus the people or the musicians that came out with one album, it hit, they forever reproduced that album and then they lost their audience because they're like, we already know that. We need something new. Right. You pick Kip's favorite marketer. <laughs> I love, I love Taylor Swift. She's Come an on. incredible marketer. A billionaire. Well, the other thing <laughs> that I would just say that I think T Swift's good at. I think all the really good creators are, they're very good on taking and acting on feedback, right? I think yeah. a lot of those creators or artists, whoever you want to say, who don't evolve, they have this like sense of vanity, right? Like they don't want to hear the bad stuff about themselves because they just like, they can't accept it. The best people are like, oh yeah, you're right. I could be better at that. Yeah, you're right. That was kind of boring when I did that one. And, and it's like the feedback loops that you are offered now as a creator is... So important. And it's one of the reasons I see like the best creators I observe, they have one core platform, whether it be a podcast, YouTube channel, newsletter, whatever, but they have some type of social channel where they're getting that kind of real time feedback that they're mm -hmm. going and flowing through to whatever they're working on at the time. Yeah. I would also say there is an aspect of, you guys said, like someone has to be interesting. You have to have a point of view. Yes. And mm. there are simple examples, even in Taylor Swift or like, 
Kip, I'm with you. I've been a fan for a while. And <laughs> if you go back, like she got flack for cutting her bangs because people were like, that's not totally. you. People were like, you're a country star. She was like, no, I can actually do pop. I can do folk. I can do rock. Like she's done all of the genres now. And I think that is important. A lot of creators, you need to listen to the people, the, the users, the consumers of your content, or you could also say the algorithm, but you also need to be able to make a decision to be like, no, like, I think this is interesting. I'm going to work on this project for three months, even if my original tweet about it didn't get as much love as I was expecting. I think that's the magical point in this stuff. It's like, you have to have a point of view and your point of view shapes who you listen to. Yes. Yeah. You know, you can hear everybody, but you're like, oh, these people over here, I understand what they're saying. It's just counter to my point of view and my worldview. And I think I'm right. So I'm going to keep going down this path, but I appreciate and like understand their like concerns. Right. And I think Mm -hmm. if you don't have a point of view, then you listen to everybody and you just get pulled in a hundred different directions. Exactly. Yeah. There was another important thing you said in there that's come up a couple of times with other uh, people who are incredible at creating content, creating things that just get a ton of traction and engagement. And it's being able to verbalize the things that are in people's head Mm-hmm. that they've not been able to say themselves. Like you said it like, oh, I've always felt this way, but I haven't been able to articulate that. I've always thought this, but I've never been able to like put it in the words that you put it. And that's like, that's an art, but it's also like being able to say the thing, right? I actually do think the point of view, part of it is like, how do I encapsulate the things that people always have wanted to say and like put them into words, put them in the video, put them into audio. And do you cultivate that in any way? Like throughout your kind of content career, how has research played a role? Have you just known what to create because you're living in this fear that you're creating content or the people for? Or have you like integrated research in some ways into your content habits? No, I mean, I do a lot of research. I I joke to people, they're like, how do you create so much stuff? And I'm like, I just spend a lot of time online, honestly. (laughs) But I mean, as part of that, I think even back to the very first pieces of content, which were blog posts that I put online other than Twitter, And they were all about remote work. And it was because I had been working remotely for several years before that I had led, you know, sizable teams. And I just felt like there was this part of the world that didn't understand this concept. They were misguided. They thought it was like the social phenomena where a bunch of people wanted to like live on the beach and not work. And I was like, no, there's something concrete here about the technical progress. And I only knew that because I'd been doing it for years. Right. And it like it bubbled up. Right. And so I think sometimes when you package something really nicely, a lot of people are like, oh, it's because you're a really good writer. And maybe that's the case if you've been doing it for a while. But I also think if you've been studying something or living something for long enough, you understand all the contours and you understand the likely pushback or the likely misunderstandings. And so that's why you can kind of like take three years of thoughts and put it into, you know, 170 characters, right? So like, I think that's a part of it. And then I also think as you get those reps in and you get validation that, okay, actually my thoughts are interesting. Then there's a level of courage where you also see things that other people aren't willing to say. And over time, I think as a creator, you kind of like increase that courage level. And then by the way, I do think it comes back down as your audience gets to a certain size, because then you just have so many eyeballs on you that you're like, oh, I I can no longer say the things that I once did. Yeah. I think there's a really important part in that, that we've talked about before in the show, which is Like part of being an entrepreneur is being okay with failure. I know it's not to the same extent, but because content has such quick feedback loops and those feedback loops are very public, you do learn a lot that like, it's okay to put things out there that no one seems to give a shit about. Yeah. (laughs) Like, you know, and you have like, if the first 10 times you put out content and you're like, visibly there's no likes or engagement and you're like, 
a sensitive person, you're probably going to stop. You're probably like, oh, I totally suck. And you kind of just have to put in the reps, right? Like part of it is when people have asked me, a lot of times people have asked me, do I need to build my personal brand to be really incredible in the field that I want to be incredible at? Because they see what's going on and they see like incredible CPOs and founders, like especially founders, right? We talked about this on the last show. Shamath, who's a billionaire, is talking up his like little subscriber product that he's going to sell on X, right? This is a billionaire. Like, yeah. Come on, man. This is a billionaire. <laughs> but everyone gets the gratification for creating something and getting such feedback loops that people like it. But I think that's one of the things I've told people is you have to have lived the life to have something interesting to say. So if you want to talk about marketing, sales, or anything like that, I think you could start from day one. But just know until you really get deep in the, you have deep expertise, you have some real knowledge, you have some real scars, you've like really grinded it out. It's going to be hard for you to like say anything too differentiated, too interesting from what everyone else is saying. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I kind of disagree with that. Okay, go for it. Like if you're willing to show your learning and failures in real time, you can have interesting things to say. That's true. Like if you're just like doing the work. Yeah, if you're just doing, if you're doing the the work, you're doing the work, but. It might be the first work you've ever done and you can still do it. Like you you were kind of saying, hey, you need to go yeah, do some true. work and then come back. You. And it's like, I disagree yeah, yeah. with that. You have to do yeah, yeah. some work because yeah. the magic of being a creator is, Steph, I'm interested in your take on this. For me, anytime there's this creator loop of like, oh, I do something. So I want to create about that. But then because I create about it, I want to do it more. And it like starts like it increases the velocity of your work to be a creator, I think. Do you find that? to be true stuff? Oh, for sure. I mean, that's the, the dopamine hits are real, right? And especially <laughs> if you're building in the open and you're like, oh, all of a sudden, like, if I spend this much time building a product, like, and people care, then, you know, I'll do it even faster. Actually, a quick story on this. I taught myself to code. I spent, uh, what, like six months or so learning before I built, like, shipped my first thing on Product Hunt. Then I got so much positive feedback that I did it in a month because I did this one month challenge. <laughs> then I did a 24 hour startup challenge. Right. So like this, like <laughs> smaller size, that's smaller a perfect <laughs> example of where I literally was like, I need to do this more and more and more and quicker. And like, I, you know, you do chase those dopamine hits for sure. But I do think it is a positive thing that you get this feedback cycle. And especially if you're creating content around the things that you truly want to do, which I would argue not all creators do, then yeah, it's a perfect cycle. Like I can't imagine you know, how you could better design it for that purpose to, to motivate yeah. yourself. I've met people who are able to do two things that I will never be able to do. First of all, they can, like at the start, we've talked about picking a lane and and that you either pick the lane or you can evolve over time and hopefully your audience stays with you and doing something that you're truly interested in. So like I've met very successful people who are making a lot of money selling online products and they A, just do the same audience time and time again, like it's the same lane and they are creating content on something they have zero interest in. Mm -hmm. And I have actually some deep respect for that (laughs) because I I can't think of much more of a miserable life than that. Like, but I don't know, like it depends if you just look at it in a way where the process is the part that you're interested in, right? They're like very process oriented, know how to like turn all the knobs to optimize the funnel, to create the money and people buy all these products and you care about the outcome, which is like a really great lifestyle because you're very, very rich. The problem I always, I've always had is like sticking, not being distracted by like the thing that is interesting at that point in time. Like I just like, oh, this is the thing I'm interested in. So I'll go deep in there and write content about that. But I guess there's two ways that you can approach that. You can pick the lane, be very dedicated to it, or you can just care about the process and care about the money coming at the other end. 
I can't do it either, Kieran. Yeah. <laughs> if that Same. helps. Like it, it just like if you're an interesting person, you have things that you're like truly drawn towards. Like it, it like sucks your soul to not be able to invest your limited time into those things versus something that, yeah, maybe more lucrative, but like I it just isn't enduring. Right. I'm actually doing real work here because I want to apply these to a podcast. So we had do you have to pick a lane, the quick feedback loops? Do you have to have a point of view? How you can vocalize what's in someone's head and research. One thing I wanted to touch on research because we have to integrate AI into every episode. <laughs> how much have you used AI in your, I don't like, okay, Steph, like how much have you used AI to ship content and then your research mm. process? So if we break content down into like, I've used AI and actually shipped something the AI has wrote and I've used AI to actually research something that I shipped. Yeah. How is your habits at the moment in terms of using AI? Less so on research. The ways that I have used AI for sure for research are A, if I don't understand something, so it's perfect for like, I had to interview someone about quantum mechanics and like he, mm. he helped create the James Webb telescope. And, you know, we're talking about dark matter. I'm like, I don't quite understand this. <laughs> so I definitely used ChatGPT to be like, can you break this down as if you're like SpongeBob SquarePants or like as if you're, you know, I'm a third grader. <laughs> and it was really good at that. So I've used it for that purpose. I've also used it sometimes to almost like, prompt me to create better questions. So I've definitely mm. like asked it, hey, can you generate some questions for this interview? They tend to be pretty placeholder, not super interesting, but that almost sets the bar for me to do better, right? So right. that's the way I've used it in research for the most part. We've also used it for fun little segments. Like we did an episode on AI hardware and at the end it was this fun fact from ChatGPT about itself. So that's the limit though. In terms of actually... Shipping the content, though, definitely have used it to brainstorm titles, descriptions, things like that. So I don't know. I feel like I've listened to a bunch of both of your episodes and you use AI way more. So what am I missing there for this podcast? Is there a way that you use AI that I haven't mentioned? I actually think of it as I don't know what Kip thinks, but uh, I think the AI assistant, like an assistant writer is I've never shipped anything that AI has created, but I've used it yep. to research a bunch of things and to assist in a bunch of things. Like one of the things I was showing Kip earlier that I thought was really cool was I took a bunch, like a lot of customer call transcripts mm. and then I made a data file from that. And then I uploaded into Zapier interfaces allows you to like upload a data reference file for the AI to use and that kind of AI chat and use that to create copy, right? So like I could use mm -hmm. it to upload 20 different calls and I could say, hey, what's the commonality of phrases in the language used? And then apply that to like redraft this homepage. Nice. Strap line. Yep. Based upon customer's languages. But I'll tell you, like what I was really surprised and I was like, from those transcripts, I was like, tell me the three biggest problems that customers had to scale and give me the three ways that they would like Zapier to overcome them and articulate that in like a David Ogilvy style, right? Because they're looking for ad copy. It's really good. <laughs> I was like, holy <laughs> shit, it's actually really good. Yeah. And so then I started giving it old ad copy. Like I started creating like a little historical bank of like David Ogilvy's best ads. I did a post about this today, but his one of his most iconic ads is this Rolls Royce ad. Mm. Kip probably knows it because he's been listening to a lot of these podcasts as well. I know exactly what and ad you're talking about. It's something about. like, you know, at 60 miles an hour, all you can hear no, is No, it, it's at 60 miles an hour, all you hear is the clock. All you hear is the clock. So it's basically saying this car is so luxurious and quiet but the only thing you're going to hear is the clock on the dashboard. The it's beautiful. We'll be right back. But before, let me tell you about another podcast I love. Nudge, hosted by Phil Agnew, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Ever noticed how the smallest changes can have the biggest impact? 
On Nudge, you learn simple evidence-backed tips to help you kick bad habits, get a raise, grow a business. Every bite-sized 20-minute show comes packed with practical advice. Nudge is fast-paced, but it's still insightful with real-world examples that you can apply. Oh, and it's the UK's fastest-growing business podcast. If you want an MBA's worth of insight one podcast, this is the right show for you. Entrepreneurs will love the show because it's filled with repeatable proven studies, not hearsay and one-off success stories. You're going to love the show because I was interviewed by Phil. You can go check out my episode. And I recently listened to an awesome episode. It's called Six Scientifically Proven Persuasion Techniques. It's a must listen for anyone in marketing. Listen to Nudge wherever you get your podcasts. There's two incredible parts about that line. So the first incredible part speaks to something people miss when they want to write great copy as the research. And so that line is taken from a technical specification doc. It's not something he wrote, right? Mm -hmm. He pulled it out of the specification doc. That single ad doubled the sales for Rolls Royce. So it's a great example of like, if you can really find the thing that your customer will really resonate with, the copy kind of doesn't matter as much as actually the benefit. Yeah. And but also, so I took all of those ads and we broke down why they were good and bad in ChatGPT. And then we applied them to Zapier. And again, the output was very, very good, like <laughs> worryingly good. <laughs> and so um, there are some like ways that you can use it. Again, if you give it context beforehand, we've talked about this in yeah. the show before. Yeah. It, whatever that training data is, like that little bit of training data that you want to use, it gets much, much better. Well, I've also used it to your point as a feedback partner. So like if I write yes, something, I'll just be that. like, roast this. <laughs> <Or> like, <laughs> like, where is this breaking down? Like, is this a good hook? Yes or no? And, you know, it'll give pretty thoughtful responses. And, you know, even to your point about like the Rolls Royce ad, it's like that really encapsulated the product pretty well. And since we were talking about podcasts earlier, I wonder if you guys think about that for a podcast, because I think that's actually where a lot of people miss is they think of a podcast as like, you know, an interview style podcast about technology. And it's like, imagine that as an ad. <laughs> right. And and so it's like they often forget, you know, the YC one liner right. or how they differ. And so do you guys feel like you understand that about marketing against the grain? Kib, you answer this question. <laughs> what would your one-liner be? I have, I have some thoughts. No, I don't. No. Do you understand it? Because I don't, Kip. <laughs> There's a couple things in this, right? Like, Kieran and I have been doing a David Ogilvy deep dive recently, yeah. right? And the biggest Ogilvy thing is what you choose to feature mm. matters much more than how you feature mm. it, right? Like, picking the right thing to feature right. matters the most. And I think we made a very kind of strategic choice in the name of the show, Barking Against the Grain, that we're going to talk about counterintuitive things. And that's, yeah. we're always going to talk about counterintuitive things related to marketing. So that's really the one-liner. And then I think basically a year ago, I think Kieran, you and I were on WhatsApp. We were like, wow, this AI thing is huge. And I think it's bigger than anybody thinks. And we need to make this a huge part of the show. I mean, it could probably be the whole show. We won't make it the whole show, but we're going to make it 70% of the show. And that's basically the path we went down was to say, all right, our rapper is to talk about things in a contrarian or counterintuitive way. And now the biggest opportunity to talk about those things is around AI. Right. Yeah. So if we start going through these and apply them to podcasts, I do want to talk about distribution, just agnostic of podcasts. Yeah. But related to this is how do you feel about pick a lane for a podcast? Because you said, hey, you know, as a creator, you can evolve and your audience will evolve with you. I've struggled with how do I make a hit marketing podcast? Kip and I talked about this. You would just create the most actionable A to B to C of marketing that you can create, right? That's actually what a large portion of the audience want. But Kip and I 
did not want to create that show, right? Mm -hmm. We want to create actual takeaways, but not in the kind of ABCs of marketing, like a little more forward thinking, future thinking. Yeah. And so that was a decision we made because of our interests, right? That comes back to like, I just can't create something I'm not interested in. But for a podcast, do you believe the same is true that you can create a podcast and you don't have to have a lane? Because it's hard to market a podcast if you don't have that lane. I actually think it's more true for podcasts than other forms of content. And I would actually argue that you guys, from my perspective, chose the right path because I think a lot more people listen to podcasts for entertainment. They trick Mm. themselves into telling themselves that they're listening for some sort of like there has to be enough of a hook that someone can convince themselves that like, oh, I'm spending my time effectively. It's like loosely about business or tech or marketing or whatever sphere they're in. But I actually think a framework that I often share like helps cement this for people where basically if you think about the different forms of content, podcasts are like your best friends, newsletters are like your coworkers, and then, you know, blogs are more like some stranger you meet at a conference. If you think about the information entertainment relationship, so the conference person, you're deeply related in terms of your intellect and like the, you know, you're at a conference for a specific thing to learn something. That's what you, you clicked an article from Hacker News, you liked the headline, you wanted to digest just that. You don't care who wrote it. You're probably not going to subscribe to their website or their associated newsletter. And it's more of a transaction. It's more of that information. You don't care if it's entertaining. You're not laughing as you're reading the article, but that's okay. That's not what you came there for. The newsletter is this more like a coworker relationship. You know you're going to hear from them on a specific cadence more often than a one-off. You're still not best friends. You know, there's some entertainment, like you don't want to have a terrible time at work. That's not the premise, right? And so newsletters are like you choose your favorite creators and you expect to hear from them every so often. But you do expect that when you're spending the three to five minutes with a newsletter, that you're going to get something back, right? Like you're going to get some like industry analysis or something like that or some news download. Podcasts actually get away with giving very little information Mm, and people being okay with it. And then if you also think about this time you spend on a podcast, like if people have made it to this point, they've been listening to us for like at least half an hour, right? And Think about the equivalent of reading a blog post, which is a few minutes, if not shorter, because people often bounce, versus a newsletter is a few minutes per week. A podcast is like some very, very significant jump up in the time you spend with someone. And so those are your best friends. Those are the people you go to every single week. You want to spend time with them. And quite frankly, think about if you had a best friend who was always coming to you with like the best practices and like, I mean, I guess... We all have a friend who does that. He's always Here's like biohacking. That <laughs> jerk know-it-all friend. Sit down. Here's how you run a paid marketing campaign for the 20th <laughs> right. time. You're like... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you're like, I can get that at my conference, right? Like I can get that at work. Yes. What I like about you as my best friend is that we can hang out and talk about anything. And I like exactly. that you're funny or relatable or, you know, again, some of those adjectives you mentioned earlier. And so I actually think to come like full circle... Podcasts are actually the medium where I think you can constantly reinvent yourself if you are compelling enough as a person. And obviously that's a big caveat. But if you actually think about a lot of podcasts, like you mentioned, Shmat, the All In podcast started different to what it is today. Right. I My agree. First Million started different to what it is today. Yeah. And that's because people liked the hosts and then they could really do whatever they want after that. Yeah, I think that is a great point. We talked a lot about this, Kip, but the My First Million is a good example of a podcast that started with like a very good angle. Like, how do you make your first million? And there's no relation to that today. Yeah. Right. The stuff that they're doing is like way beyond that. So I think that is a really great lesson. 
I, I agree. First of all, Steph, be prepared for Kieran to steal that framework and post it on LinkedIn <laughs> this week because I can already tell that he's going to. <laughs> Good job. Kieran's like, I've already half written the post. Gonna have you, AI you finish plus it up AI, for me. it's done. <laughs> totally. I'm a content regurgitator. That's my angle. We all are. But but the cheat sheet for everybody watching and listening, though, is... I feel like there's something in this from Kip. Actually, should we just press on this? Kip, did I steal something from you and you want to get it out? Oh. There's definitely something in your comments. <laughs> and we should just hash it out on the podcast. What did I post of yours that you are slightly better about? Because there's definitely something there. Just hash no, it out on the podcast live. It's actually nothing of mine. I definitely it's what's hilarious is that I have this like intimate <laughs> front row seat to your life because we're so close that like every LinkedIn post you write is like, oh, I... I was there. I was in that conversation. He sent me that thing. That is true. It's just that like, I feel, I feel like true. your LinkedIn post. I'm like, oh, that's my life from like a week ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's tell Kip and then put it on LinkedIn. All right. Sorry, I interrupted your point. Go for it. No, but I was just trying to double down for everybody listening and watching that like the macro of Steph's framework is the more your personality is exposed, the more flexibility you have in the topic. You yes, cover. great way to put it. Right? Like if you're very distant from your audience, then you got to stay in one very precise lane. If you're very intimate with your audience, you can cover a wide variety of topics, mm -hmm. right? And I think we've right. seen that throughout time. Right. Kira, do we want to talk about podcasts a little bit more now? Building a I, podcast? I'm actually going to go through these now. Okay. So this was the first, I'm trying to go through these lessons and apply them to podcasts. So that was, a, I think this is a really great is a really good example one. of the pick your lane. The other one I want to talk about is feedback loops. So I actually think podcasts are somewhat hard to get quick feedback loops on. Mm -hmm. Like one of the things that we hypothesized is that short form video might be a good way to get instant feedback on podcasts. I don't know if that's true now. Like we went viral for some things on TikTok and I look at it and I'm like, what the f*** are these Gen Z ones watching this <laughs> for? <laughs> like, like we had this segment on talking about a chicken waffle house. Like we talk about good stuff here. I swear to God, there's some good... Good lessons. And then I look, there's this chicken waffle house thing that got 3 million views. That's nothing about nothing. And I'm like, I don't understand the internet anymore. It's finally happened. So we talked about quick feedback loops and being able to create content and other mediums. How do you think about that for podcasts? Well, I'll grant you that it's like definitely the hardest medium for that, right? Like the analytics are terrible. So and actually, I'm curious to know from you guys before I share maybe some techniques. Do you find clips work? Like, I think two years ago, they were a mechanism that not a lot of people were doing. So the few that were, were seeing outsized returns in terms of views. But now everyone has the same mm, approach, no? Yeah, like the same, same agencies, all. they all look the same. <laughs> yeah. Right. So I don't know. I'm curious. Like, we've definitely had some do well. But I would say on the whole, I question whether that approach is like, you know, past its prime. Well, I think there's a couple things in that. One, in a minute, we should talk about audio versus audio and video podcasts, right? right? Yeah. Because I think when it's an audio only podcast, there's like no feedback loop. Yeah. The data yeah. is really Zero. horrible. Yeah. It's super lagging. It's really tough. You know, Kieran, you and I have talked a lot about this. Steph, we're kind of the mind that clips can work, but where we think it's going is what Sean did for the All In podcast interview, that like great two to five minute video that like mm, catches mm -hmm. the zeitgeist on something that you could put on YouTube and X and Reels and really do something, but it's kind of native to its own thing. It's not just like a yeah. 30 second clip out of a bigger show is probably what we're going to start experimenting with because it's like that feels a little bit more differentiated right, right now. Yeah. yeah. And also pull someone in to the point where they actually would want to go jump 
to another platform right. or app. Like lead well, magnets. Right. So I mean, back to your friend analogy, like all those clips are super transactional. Like you yes. can't right. get to know anybody unless like that's your whole business, right? You're a TikTok influencer and like you're spending yeah. all day on a 30 second clip. I'm right? just thinking of the analogy. Sorry to cut you off there, but just like it's literally no, like the equivalent of you jumping out from behind a bush and being like, <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> yes. And these people are like, I only listen. Yeah, yeah. Like, they're like, I only listen to six podcasts. Like, I've got my best friends. This is not convincing at all. By, by the way, that would kill on TikTok, though. If somebody's TikTok, if you wanted a great TikTok channel, TikTok in real life, and all you did was recording yourself doing your TikTok with videos ads. to some stranger. Okay, you can sponsor this person to jump out of a bush and surprise someone with your ad. I'm telling you, that would blow up. That would actually blow up. I do think this is a good example of like, something works, gets saturated, you should do the very opposite thing, yeah. right? I think that's part of the problem. But actually, Kip, your point, this is related to feedback loops. So just jump into it, like your perspective on audio versus audio and video. And then I would love to hear how you apply that to A16 and Z. Yeah, yeah. So I, I totally agree with you, Kip. Audio alone, I tweeted this a while ago. If you just put the analytics in Chartable or Simplecast or whatever you use versus YouTube, it's like you get probably around three metrics, which also, by the way, differ across apps for audio only. And then for video on YouTube, there's like 50. Right. So that gives you a sense of just the fidelity and feedback that you get. So I do think for us, like we are on YouTube with all of our content for that reason, not just the feedback, but also the distribution that you get through YouTube. Right. You guys have talked about this a lot. More pointed. If you were going to start a new podcast today, would you start an audio only podcast? No, no. I, I do have either. one with my husband, but that is not like a business. Like that is, again, starting from the perspective of just, I have something to say. And so let's make yeah. it the lowest lift possible. I'm solving for a different problem, but most people listening are not solving for the just, I want to say something with my husband. They want to build some sizable If you audience. want hundreds or thousands of people to listen to you, you have to do video in addition to audio. Right. Yes. Although on YouTube, I'm curious how you guys do it. Something that I'm thinking a lot about these days is if you just record the way we're doing and then you just publish the you know video version on YouTube, that's like the lowest investment and then there's a second tier where you're like adding a bunch of B-roll and like lower thirds and you're doing a lot of cuts. And then there's a third version that we kind of talked about for shorts, but could apply to YouTube too, which is just like YouTube native content. Like you're not just repurposing the podcast. You're just creating stuff for YouTube. Yeah. And so I'm curious, like, how do you guys think about that? Because it's like the, you know, three by three, it's like the amount of investment or two by two, I guess, versus the expected outcome. I will say, Kieran, tell me if you think I'm wrong. The biggest thing that's changed about our show in the year and a half we've been doing it is showing visual examples. Mm. So anytime we prep for a show now, we always have charts or some yep. work that we've done, some graphic that we thought was super interesting. And we show those during the show. And then sometimes, thanks to producer Darren, it'll be cut into B-roll and maybe look better. And sometimes it'll just be kind of take over the screen for a little bit. So it's not the lowest lift, but it's not like this crazy high production value. And wow, do people on YouTube love visual yeah, examples. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I could tell you for sure that Turns they love Turns out a them. visual platform like visual aesthetics. Like, I know. Yeah. 
I think that's the part of it is like when I think of YouTube first, it's like, how does this appear in YouTube first? And then RSS is like nice to have as well. But to Kip's point, like the visuals, like trying to bring it to life in YouTube is much more important. I don't know how you've maybe found this in A16. Mm-hmm. And am I saying A16 and Z? A16 and Z, yeah. yeah. And I realize I'm not ignoring your question. I'm happy to talk about it. No, but am I saying it correctly? <laughs> a lot of people do say A16, A16. but it's A16 and Z. Yeah. So, but, um, but you were doing it A16 and Z. And Z. You added an A and Z. I know. That's what I was like, Why am I saying Which I've never heard anybody do. No, no, I've never heard anyone say that either. <laughs> Steph's so polite, she won't correct me. And I'm sitting there, and Z. What is the and Z? But... One of the things we found, actually, is we do have some instances where a topic works really well on YouTube and works fine on RSS. And then a topic works really well on RSS and fine on YouTube. And sometimes we actually exported our data to Code Interpreter and ChatGPT and look for commonalities and topics that were performing well and look for commonalities and topics that were performing completely different. And actually, there were some topics that performed very differently across those two things. So that's like one of the hard things about combining these. You see the same thing? Yeah. So it is tough because, so for example, something that worked pretty well for us is we did these AI hardware explainers. We did a series of three of them, but they're super visual. They work for the audio medium, but they're like these highly animated. Like if you know Cleo Abram, it, we we work with her or someone who I think still works with her, her animator. And so those were created, you could say, for YouTube. So it's again that like YouTube first content that we happen to also publish on audio. And then we have other things where, again, it's like it's podcast first, the way we're recording, and we just happen to want to use YouTube as right. a distribution mechanism. Yeah. And I'm leading more towards the former YouTube first content these days because Same. that is where the distribution is. That is where the data is. And I find that the content that you create for YouTube applies better to the audio feed than the reverse, the right? Reverse. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. We exactly. found the exact same thing. Yeah, yeah. Let's end here on distribution. Steph, you have grown audience for every single form of content that you could possibly grow for. Why don't you go on a rant about how f***ing hard it is to grow (laughs) an audience for a podcast and give people the realness and just tell us like, what are some of the things that have worked and what are some of the things that have surprised you about growing such an incredible podcast over there? A16Z. A16 and Z. I have rebranded the company. Yeah. So I should say, like, I came into A16Z pretty lucky. Like, the podcast did exist. So I've built other things from scratch, but I can't take credit for that. So, yeah, first of all, it's really hard. You know, I joked the other day, there's nothing that unites me more with someone than going through U.S. immigration. Number two <laughs> is someone who has, you know, tried to grow a podcast. Love they it. know they've been through it all. U.S. immigration, the last two times, have tried to take me into the little room. I don't know what is going on. Like, what oh, are you geez. hiding, Kieran? I know. What am I hiding? I don't know. No. And it, it's really, you know, not to reiterate the same thing. It's really because there's no distribution mechanisms, no obvious ones. And then second is even if there are things that are working, the analytics are so bad that mm. you can't even properly action or identify that most of the time. Unless you're sending something through a chartable smart link, it's tough. But I guess it also makes sense because think about if you were to apply the exercise of like exponentially growing your number of best friends, that sounds strange, right? Sounds like a hard (laughs) task at hand. So with all of that said, I guess a few things that that have worked. I mean, perhaps unsurprisingly, cross promos are something that we do quite a bit of. And I think that is because it's almost like the cocktail party, right? If we can use the same analogy of like someone you know, someone that's trusted is like bringing their trusted 
best friends into the same room and saying that this is, you know, someone worth spending time with. Can you give some an example of how that works just for the listeners so they understand how you co-promote a podcast? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously you want to be mindful of the people, like it's same thing. If you're running a dinner party, you don't want to just like invite some people that you don't actually know and, and like, but yeah, you, you basically work with other podcasts who have similar audiences and then you hopefully also are listening to those podcasts again to make sure that you actually like them. And then you promote them. It's basically like an right. embedded ad within a podcast. So that's one method. There's also paid ads. I've reduced the amount that we're doing there because those historically don't, you know, not just for A16Z, but I think they don't work super well. They're not good. Not sticky subscribers. Nutrition is high. The thing I've seen even for my personal podcast that's worked the best is to use some of these other platforms, not just YouTube to grow an audience, but also to seed ideas. So for example, for my own podcast, the best way we grew is like if we did an episode about the 40 hour work week, I would tweet something that was, I don't know if you'd say it's controversial, but got a lot of engagement of a bunch of people being like, yeah, why the hell do we still operate in this paradigm? And then, you know, following up with clips in that thread. Mm. So again, like drawing the attention to something or, or getting the attention spurred and then following up. So none of this is rocket science, but I do think that is probably the best way I've seen to grow something is to go on other platforms where you do have distribution and analytics, and then, you know, again, spur ideas there and then follow up with the podcast content. Of course, you just have to create a great product too. And, and I think if you create something shareable, that's word of mouth tends to be the best for podcasts. Right, right. There's like a tipping point where you start to get enough referrals that you can start to grow that way. The first one, actually, interestingly enough, Kip, is probably why we originally thought about spinning up the podcast network, which is yeah. the best way to grow podcasts is through these embeddable ads, not even ads, but like recommendations for other podcasts. Yeah. yeah, That's the way I actually discover podcasts is I listen to a podcast and they actually recommend another podcast or another episode of a podcast. So I think that works really well. Yeah. And I think just like any product, it's like, how can you create shareable nuggets? So like one thing we've done over the last few months is there are so many podcasts that talk about technology. So one spin that I've been using more recently is like, we're not just the podcast that talks about technology. We show you, right? So we like mm, did an yeah. episode in a self-driving car. I saw we that. just did an episode where like I would learn how to play basketball and dunk in VR. I saw that as so well. it's like, that's, that's, really that's cool. to me, yeah. it's like you do have to, especially in 2023, think about the packaging. It's like, what does differentiate you? What is your one-liner? And I think that's something that we're working on. But like, I think a lot of podcasts probably, again, couldn't articulate that. They're just like, oh, yeah. I'm, we talk about tech. What do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Actually, that's a really good example. I've started to see you do that, which is, again, you bring it to life in a very visual way. I saw the drive you did in the car and the basketball game and VR. You were a very good virtual basketball oh, player. Thank you. And then so they, like, I think your podcast has bring it to life in that way. And then you just have such dense amount of knowledge. Like I, I went through the entire, you turn an AI event into a series of podcasts. I went through every single one of those yeah. podcasts. So there's like ways that you can bring it to life in a variety of ways. Which, by the way, I think tech in general, tech and business podcasts, you guys do a good job of this, but like most just are quite lazy, quite frankly, from the perspective <laughs> they're like, okay, let's just bring in big guests, which is great. And that's actually what most of the time people want to hear. Story. Obviously, that's a growth mechanism too. But yeah. And then they just hit publish. And if you look at many other industries, like True Crime is one of the biggest in podcasts, the sound design, the production, like mm -hmm. they, this is a product yeah, they're right. creating. And- Quite frankly, again, like a lot of the business and tech podcasts are lazy. So that was one of the first things 
I came in and I was like, let's elevate this. Like, let's make this sound great, which sounds simplistic. But, you know, I think it's actually crazily enough, not the norm in business no. and tech podcasts. Right. Yeah. People still don't think of it as a product. Don't think about the polish. Don't think about the ways that you need to kind of bring it to life for a consumer. This is awesome. I thought this was incredible. I thought this was one of our best deep dives for anybody who wants to be a creator or especially is thinking about launching a podcast or YouTube channel. This is amazing stuff. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks for joining us. And we'll see everybody really soon on Marketing Against the Green. Thanks, guys.